So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Vicky, welcome back to the program. Thank you. The Liberals, as promised, brought back the long-form census, and we lost our shit over it. And by we, I mean Canadians. Canadians lost their minds. People were posting selfies with the census. Like, I thought it was bad during the election when people were posting with their ballots, but with an actual census form. I honestly didn't realize Canadians were so attached to this document. The census makes a lot of sense. It gives us a lot of policy, you know, and a lot of good comes out of it. But, uh, I mean, people were essentially like, give me census or give me death. Yeah, they are. And I think it's kind of weird that they really signed up for this whole thing where you can possibly still get imprisoned for not filling out the census. Wait, what? Yeah, it's like the least cool crime. Like, imagine being in jail and people walk up to you asking what you did to get in there and you're just like... I refuse to fill out a form. (laughs) Yeah, so it's a penalty of a maximum of $1,000 or six months in jail or both. I mean, that's just cruel. I think it's fitting. (laughs) If you don't want to fill out a basic form, you know. You have no place in our society. Go back to rot in jail. You should spend some time thinking about it. So, I mean, joking aside, you know, the census actually does really matter. We're going to speak to a professor whose data was actually quite affected and his research was was negatively affected because under the conservative administration prior to the liberal administration, they actually got rid of the long form census. So a lot of, of vital data was lost. And we're also going to talk about one glaring omission that the census does have, and that is on the issue of gender and sex. And we're going to find out why there's a case to give a billion dollars to Bombardier and a wealthy family in Quebec, essentially. I'm Supriya Devetti, and this is Canada Land Commons. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible has a library of over 180,000 audiobooks. Supriya, what do you read for fun? I'm currently listening to Believer by David Axelrod. It's one of those, you know, nonfiction political nerd books. David Axelrod, of course, of Axelrod and Associates, uh, was one of the key figures in the Obama victory back in 2008. Or 2008. 2008 is a weird thing to say. <laughs> so if you go to audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand, you can get a free book and a 30-day free trial. That's audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand. So Vicky, imagine if you looked at the ethnic origin part of the census and the options were Italian or Irish. 
What do you do? I, I'm going to go on a limb and guess you're neither Italian nor Irish. I am not Italian or Irish. I am super, super black. So it'd be really upsetting to me. I wouldn't have the choices that represent who I am, and they don't accurately reflect the communities I lived in. So the analogy here is that that kind of how it feels for people who are filling out the census. And when you get to the part that has to refer to sex, the only options are male or female. And if you are trans or gender non-binary, then that definitely doesn't represent you. So we got in touch with Dylan Black, who doesn't identify as male or female and prefers the pronoun they. They're a collective member of the community group Queering 613 in Ottawa. And Dylan says filling out that part of the mandatory census is one more reminder that you're excluded. It definitely impacts me, but also because I work with queer and trans youth and I, that, those are the communities I work with as a social worker. So like I see the day-to-day kind of systemic barriers that they experience, you know, institutional policies or forms or, um, you know, like medical institutions or government um, IDs and that kind of stuff, like how that impacts those folks particularly, but also anyone who's like of a marginalized gender and trans folks as well. That's interesting to me because there are so many moments where people say, you know, vote, stand up and be counted. And here's a moment where the government simply isn't accurately counting the people that they have. And so I guess it's not just about the choice between male and female. Some people would say that using the word sex instead of gender is the problem in itself. And, you know, there's other limiting language in the census. For example, it asks if you're living with the same sex or opposite sex common law partner. If you consider yourself gender non-binary, there's not really an easy way to answer that question. Statistics Canada is letting people leave both of the sex boxes blank if they don't identify as male or female. They're suggesting people leave a comment, which will be considered during public consultations over the next census. Dylan has mixed feelings about that approach. It's just hard to kind of come to a conclusion of like, what is the best format to do it? Because right now they're just saying, oh, you know, click next, fill out the comment section. But are the analysis really like looking at that information? Are they looking at it as a qualitative information? Where's that information going? What are they doing with it? For the next census, are they having trans and non-binary communities like advise the next construction of the census? So I, I think it's good. It's a good step. But I'm trying to figure out if it's really meaningful. And is it, is it meaningful for trans and non-binary communities at the end of the day. So I don't really know. So I have mixed feelings. I think I think it's good, but I don't think they're they're maybe not doing enough. You know, it's 2016, like the fact that they haven't done as much as they could have up until this date, I think that they could probably do better. Yeah, no doubt they could probably do better. I think what trans people are asking for is more specificity in how they plan to do better. It's good and well to relaunch the census, but how are you accurately going to reflect Canada now? Dylan, however, did acknowledge that it would be pretty hard to have a drop down of every possible gender identity. Like I work kind of in like looking at gender and technology, but when Facebook opened up their gender options, everybody was really excited about it. But when you look at the way the coding happens in the system, it actually still is just binary coding. So all of the other identities that were opened up, they still kind of fall in the, in the male category, which I think is really interesting because everything kind of generates back to like, you know, male. So... I mean, I don't know in terms of like how they can fix the system in terms of the tech side of things with the system on the survey. But Dylan also recognizes it would be difficult to train everyone at Stats Canada to interpret the data meaningfully. So they would like to have them bring that data back to the community and have gender non-binary or trans people work on it. And this isn't a question about identity or political correctness. Independent studies have shown that trans people have lower incomes and higher rates of depression and anxiety than the rest of the population. They also face enormous levels of violence. So not only could we use this data to come up with better policies, but, you know, the healthcare industry could also benefit from a countrywide picture of the issue. 
So, Vicky, aside from people being huge nerds and taking census selfies. Oh, God, that's so sad. There's actually a real reason why a lot of people were excited about the census coming back. And to help us answer that, we got in touch with David Holchansky, who's a professor at the University of Toronto. And he has teams in eight cities across the country who use the census to see how neighborhoods are shifting. Because, you know, as, as we know, gentrification is a huge issue. And they use these pieces of data called census tracks, which is about 3,500 people. So Toronto, for example, has about 500 of these tracks. So they're looking at these neighborhoods in terms of things like socioeconomic status. High income areas, low income areas, are there more or fewer of them and where are they and uh, and what's happened to middle income census tracts, middle income neighborhoods, there, there are way fewer of them. So, you know, they have these maps going back decades all the way to 1971. And then in 2011, the government gets rid of the long form census. In its place, they put this voluntary national household survey, as it was called. As far as, you know, statistical controversy goes, this was pretty up there because the chief statistician at StatsCan actually ended up resigning over this. And the loss of data during this chunk of time was actually a huge problem for David and his team. Anybody who uses data has taken any statistics course knows that in a voluntary survey, High-income people tend not to respond. They can't be bothered. And low-income people and people with uh, lower educations tend not to respond. They, they just don't. And that's what happened. We have host census tracts uh, where there's no data because the response rate was too low. So, for example, Hamilton, Ontario lost four or five low-income neighborhoods. They're still there. They're still full of low-income people, but we have no data on them. So, I mean, that sounds great for Hamilton. It looks like they've solved their poverty problem real quickly. Yeah, by just erasing that it exists. Yeah, I mean, if you can't deal with the problem, just pretend it isn't there. So David went on to say that the National Household Survey in 2011 actually gave a total false picture of income inequality in Canada. And his team looked at information from the Canada Revenue Agency on income, which they could then compare against data from the National Household Survey. So anyways, we had that for the same year for the NHS and from the tax filer data. And uh, sure enough, Stephen Harper's National Household Survey showed that we were less unequal. We had fewer low-income people and fewer high-income people than we actually have. And uh, the middle class isn't uh, shrinking all, it's shrinking, but not all that much, right? Again, because uh, low and high-income people did not respond. So it sounds like the National Household Survey made it look like Stephen Harper's government had made income inequality disappear in many ways. And I actually asked David that very question because I wanted to know, you know, years from now when future historians look back on the Harper years, are they going to get a false picture of an economy that was rosier than it actually was? Yeah, remember, I'm, uh, so we're not talking about the economy as such, but you're talking about, say, income distribution in Canada, right, that things were better <laughs> in 2011 after he was in office for five years six years, right, than before, which is not true. But that's what the NHS shows. And that's great for Harper's legacy, I guess. But what does it do for David and his team? Where do they get the information to fill in those years? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question because, you know, people are still using a lot of this NHS data because there's no real alternative. But on the bright side, for the purposes of David and his team, they were actually able to use that data from the Canada Revenue Agency to fill in some of the gaps of their research. But ultimately, what was lost were things like, where are African Canadians living? Where are South Asians living? And here's why that ultimately matters. What if you're a social agency, right, targeting a certain group for assistance? What if you're a private sector in marketing of a certain kind of product to a certain niche market or something? You, you have nothing. 
So, you know, this affects everything. It affects school boards. It affects infrastructure. It affects investments. It affects where government is going to place, like you said, social agencies. On the bright side, we're getting back on track. David and his team have good data from 2006. And, you know, soon they'll have good data from 2016. So things are looking up for data nerds. Bombardier has been in the news a lot lately. I have heard. I live in Toronto, so they've been in my mind a lot. Yeah, because they fucked up the streetcar situation here in Toronto. Yeah, so we were supposed to get a whole bunch of streetcars, and I think we maybe got one or two. Yeah, a little bit more than one or two. We're on to now our 19th, but we've still got 185 to go. So batting average isn't real great here for Bombardier on that front. But of course, Bombardier is also making national headlines because they've already received a billion dollars from the Quebec government. Uh, And now they're asking the federal government for some monies. And it's interesting because they just made this sale of these C-Series jets that they just, you know, they couldn't practically give away. And we don't know the details because they have entered into this agreement with Delta and Delta has agreed to purchase a bunch of these jets. But the other flip side to this is that the majority stake of Bombardier is essentially a family-controlled company in which the Bombardier and Baudouet families own 53%. So if we were going to bail them out and give them public dollars, it's essentially we're lining the pockets of this already wealthy, well-connected, powerful family in Quebec. And uh, optics-wise, it's not exactly great. So I'm just not sure what the case is for giving Bombardier all this money if it's handing it to a bunch of wealthy people who are already wealthy. Yeah, I guess the argument is that it's going to create jobs. And, you know, an argument that I've often heard is that if Canada is to have an aerospace industry to begin with, because a lot of other governments that do have aerospace industries end up subsidizing companies to a degree that if Canada wants to get in the game and sit at the table, then we're going to have to dole out some dollars. So some of the cases to be made against the Bombardier investment bailout, whatever you want to call it, are pretty obvious. Aaron Woodrick is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and they've been very opposed to the Bombardier bailout and have not been shy about being quite vocal about it. We're sort of the de facto opponents of Bombardier in in the public sphere, but it's not really about Bombardier. It's just about a general principle, and it's a pretty simple one. So all it is is public dollars, tax dollars we pay for, should go towards public services, things like hospitals and schools and roads, the things you pay your taxes for. So that, to me, doesn't exactly sound like a a radical statement. That sounds perfectly reasonable. Taxes should go for what taxes are usually meant for, which is public services. But isn't providing money for things like streetcars a public service? Sure, But now we're talking streetcars and we're not talking jets. So that kind of gets into different territory. But Aaron also said that (laughs) the government is considering this bailout because he claims that we just have a soft spot for airplanes. They've decided for political reasons that certain industries are desirable or special. And so they're willing to spend public resources on those. One of them is aerospace. I think, you know, emotionally we can understand why. Airplanes are sophisticated. They are exciting. They're prestigious to build. You know, a country that builds airplanes must be a sophisticated country, right? And so I think the reason that politicians like the idea of being able to go cut a ribbon at a, you know, in front of a plane, it sort of says, hey, you know, we are a sophisticated country. And so they're willing to spend money on it, even if, for example, we can't sell those planes for more than the cost to make them. So one of the obvious questions here is about whether we should let a huge company sink and lose a whole bunch of jobs. Here's what Aaron had to say. I think most people understand intuitively if you have a store on your main street in your town and it goes out of business because they don't have enough customers, no one really seriously suggests that the government should come in and pay them to open up because jobs would be lost. 
And so, you know, if you multiply that one small business by a thousand other businesses across the country, you're still having a lot of jobs disappear. But again, nobody suggests we go and bail them out. But suddenly you talk about airplanes and everybody nods their head and says, well, of course we need to. And it's not obvious to me why, you know, people in dozens of other industries don't deserve that same kind of special treatment that people making airplanes or cars do. So I figure we could use a little bit more perspective on this. Vicky, what do you say? Maybe the flip side? Sounds good. Uh, let's get Mike Moffat on the phone. Mike Moffat, you are an assistant professor of business economics at the Ivy Business School at Western University, and you previously served on Trudeau's Economic Council before the election. Uh, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Trudeau's talked a lot about the right business case for Canada to invest. If Bombardier just made a huge sale on their C-Series jets and they still need a bailout, what exactly is the case for a good investment here? Well, I think that's a very good question. And I think there's a couple things. Uh, there's a few things that we don't know. So partly, we don't know what kind of discount uh, that Bombardier offered Delta in order to take these planes. So we don't really know whether or not Bombardier is making money from these planes or how much. Furthermore, I think Bombardier might make the argument that, well, the Delta case shows that you know we are going to be profitable in the medium to long term, but we need that money up front. We need some money up front because we're going to have a bunch of expenses in building these planes and, uh, and R&D and all that, those sorts of things. We're going to have to spend that money first before we get money uh, from Delta. You know, there's the possibility that they could have some cash flow issues. But I think those are very good questions to ask. And I think the federal government, when going to Bombardier, you know, needs to sit down with them and seriously go, like, what, what is your business plan? What is your plan for cash flow? What does the future outlook look like? And furthermore, can you operationally build those planes, build those streetcars in a time frame that you have promised uh, your customers? Because again, we've seen this company time and time again not being able to fulfill their promises. Some of Bombardier's main uh, competitors also receive some sort of government subsidization. So if we want to be in this game, then should we get ready to have or be more comfortable with government giving them our dollars? I, I, I think so, that uh, when you see you know, Brazil or the European Union giving money uh, to these sectors, I think there's a, an understanding that to level the playing field, we may need to do the same. But on the other hand, you know, I know Aaron would point out that said, well, okay, we'll just let those other countries subsidize aerospace. We'll make something else, even though it's not really clear uh, what that something else is. And I think furthermore, it's okay or can be justifiable on a cost-benefit analysis to subsidize an industry or subsidize a corporation. I think where things get a little bit more, more difficult is when you know these companies become too big to fail uh, and the governments are constantly having to give them money, which we've seen in the aerospace industry. And that allows the companies to you know, maybe not be as managed as well uh, as companies in, in other industries. So certainly there is room for supports, but those supports should not become a get-out-of-jail-free card. Aaron at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation also says that with companies like Bombardier who make planes and cars, we have a sentimental attachment to them in a way that we wouldn't react to resource extraction companies. Do you agree with that idea? Well, I, I certainly think that that is part of it, that uh, when you have an industry that's been a long, around a long time, uh, whether it be aerospace or automotive, that you do get that attachment. 
That said, uh, it also does make sense that if you have a lot of people who are working in aerospace and working on automotive, you do worry about what happens uh, to their jobs if those companies go away. You know, are those people going to be able to retrain and work in something else? But I do think the big difference is you can move an automotive plant. You know, you could have an automotive plant in Windsor or Detroit. You know, you can move that across the border. You can't move an oil sands operation, right? So it's uh, the international competitions there is a bit different. You know, an oil sands operation can't just go to the jurisdiction that's offering the lowest tax rate or offering the best incentives. Whereas an automotive plant, an aerospace plant, other types of uh, companies that are a little bit more mobile have a little bit more freedom to choose jurisdictions. We had Quebec who had already agreed to give Bombardier a billion dollars. If we let Bombardier sink, what then happens to Quebec? Quebec uh, would, would lose that money. I, I know the, the various pension funds in Quebec have been invested in Bombardier, so they would uh, lose that money. Now, in, in the grand schemes of things, Quebec is a very large economy. So although a billion dollars is a lot of money, that, you know, that would be at risk. But that, that said, nobody is really suggesting that if Bombardier doesn't get a federal bailout that they'll go under. I mean, the, the, the question here is more, you know, how quickly will they be able to grow? How quickly will they be able to expand? Will they be able to fulfill their existing contracts? And, and we've had a, a big issue with that with the uh, TTC streetcar contract. So Bombardier really isn't in a position where, you know, if they don't get this federal money, they're, they're instantly going to go bankrupt. But rather, they need this money to fulfill their obligations and be able to increase uh, the capacity for, for building things like planes and streetcars and that kind of thing. So if the government does, in fact, end up bailing out Bombardier, do you think folks in Alberta or Newfoundland w would kind of feel slighted? One of the, the arguments for subsidizing a Bombardier by uh, proponents of, of doing so is the fact that we had things like the auto bailouts in 2008-2009, which uh, disproportionately helped Ontario. So now you have a large segment of the population in Quebec saying, well, okay, you did this for Ontario, you know, now it, it should be our turn. Even though, you know, the, the details are very, very different, you know, back in 2008, 2009, you didn't have well-functioning financial markets. These companies were, for the most part, well-run, but you just had this sort of global financial crisis. Where the Bombardier situation is different, where, you know, financial markets are working, the global economy is doing reasonably well, but you have a company that's having all kinds of operational and managerial issues, so that uh, that becomes important. What about the whole fact that like the Bombardier Baudouin family still owns a majority stake that they have 53 percent stake in Bombardier. So aren't we essentially just subsidizing this wealthy, well-connected family? Yeah, absolutely. We don't want this to be about, uh, you know, giving money from the middle class and giving it to the rich. My view is any assistance that goes to Bombardier there has to be a quid pro quo. We need to get something in return. And I think part of what we need uh, to get in return is for that family to have less control uh, over this company. So I would like to see this dual class share structure, where, where, which gives a lot of power to this family. I think weakening or eliminating that should be a part of, of any federal deal, because that's what we don't want. We, we don't want this to become welfare for the 1%. So, Mike, if I incorporate a Supriya Inc., how do I go about getting the government to uh, invest in my student debt here? <laughs> 
Well, again, I think it's just uh, you know, making that uh, making that business the case. The business that, case I mean, that that Supriya Inc. will give the government more for their dollar. Yeah, exactly. That by giving you a dollar, they will get back five or ten or, or fifteen dollars. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure which uh, agency of government uh, you know Supriya <laughs> Inc. Uh, should be going to uh, for that. But that's the basic uh, logic on this. And I would, you know, I would like to see you know a little bit more transparency when when it comes to this. So. Uh, you know, that's an issue that's come up in Ontario that is not clear who's getting this government support at, at what level. Are these loans being paid back or are these being grants? So there's a lot of questions around transparency that I think governments should address. But that being said, unlike Aaron, I wouldn't throw out these entire programs. Rather, you know, I would look at seeing how we can reform them and, you know, deal with all of these investments on a case by case basis. So speaking of that transparency, if we give Bombardier all this money, do we get a new Heritage Minute ad or not? Maybe if it's successful, you know, so we could have a Heritage Minute of, well, we had this company and they just couldn't deliver their streetcars on time. But, uh, <laughs> you know, here came the government to the rescue and now Toronto got its streetcars on time and everybody was able to ride the TTC without congestion and delay and everybody was happy. So that, that would be a Heritage ad I, I think I'd like to see. And this culminates another show. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Just type in Candle and Commons into that search bar. Our producer is Kevin Sexton, and we have music by Nathan Burley. Go to CandleLandShow.com for all your Candleland associated needs. And while you're there, check out Vicky's newsletter. It's called Not Sorry, and it's the funniest thing you'll ever get. Yeah, it really is. Uh, if you have any problems with it, you can always email me. It's Vicky at CandleLandShow.com, but also don't email me. You can tweet at me at Sabrina Devetti, and if you want to email me things, then just email Vicky. She'll tell me. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Shortcuts is out on Thursday, and a new episode of Commons will air next Tuesday. And if you like the show, support us. Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.